everyone. You know what time it is. It's your favorite time of the week or the fortnight, as it were. It's time for UConn 360. It's the world's only podcast that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. And this is episode 27 as we approach our one-year anniversary of podcasting. And our our merry crew that entire time has consisted of me, Tom Breen, your facilitator of sorts, my colleagues, Julie Bartuka. Hey, hey. Ken Best. Hello, hello. And as usual, we have a doozy of a program for you this week. We've got a lot of fun stuff I think you're going to enjoy, and I think you're probably going to learn something. Hope so. Hope so. Uh, so why don't we start, in our traditional fashion, with some Husky headlines. Ken, what's happening? The big news on campus is that we have two Grammy winners yes. now at UConn in the School of Fine Arts. Uh, you may recall we spoke with uh, Professor Ken Fuchs uh, a few months ago when his new disc came out. Spiritualist Concerto for Piano and Orchestra. It won the Grammy for Best Classical Compendium yes. last weekend in Los Angeles. It was his fourth nomination, but his first win. And then we found out that Professor Louis Hanslick, who's a trumpeter, hmm. who I've talked with several times, he was working with the Wayne Shorter Quartet as a member of the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra. They won the Grammy. I didn't know about uh, that for second the album, one. For the album Amanon. It was also the Top jazz album of 2018 by the New York Times, NPR Music, and bunches of other people. So we have that. And there was actually a third person nominated with the Yukon Connection, Mary Bannis, hmm. who listeners of the radio broadcast of this fine podcast will remember. Uh, she's a 2003 graphic design major. She was up for a Grammy for the Be the Cowboy Design package from Mitski, who is a uh, pop singer. Hmm. She didn't win. But she was nominated, which is right. a big deal. It's an honor just to be nominated. Yes. They should have performed with Cardi B, all of these people. <laughs> they might They might have. I don't know. I didn't see the ceremony. <laughs> it was actually really good this year, was I have it? to say. Yeah, better than usual. But these, of course, were not televised awards because they televise about three, I think. That's awesome news, days. though, that we have Very two UConn good. faculty members bringing home the Grammys. Very cool. Julie, what's, uh, what's going on in your world? Any Grammy news? Not Grammy news, no. But according to a new UConn study, uh, we've got some interesting findings. A large proportion of sexual and gender minority youth do not identify with traditional sexual identity labels, such as gay, lesbian, and bisexual, but instead describe their sexual identities using emerging labels, including pansexual, non-binary, and asexual. The findings are based on a national survey on the lives of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer, or LGBTQ, teenagers. They were published in the Journal of Research on Adolescence. Ryan J. Watson, Assistant Professor of Human Development and Family Studies, led the study with co-authors Rebecca M. Poole of UConn's Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity and Christopher W. Weldon of the National Cancer Institute. The study used data from the LGBTQ National Teen Study that Watson and Poole developed in collaboration with the Human Rights Campaign. The survey of more than 17,000 teens was conducted online and found that 26% choose emerging sexual identity labels. We need to ask and be open to what our teen sexual identities are because if we don't know they're out there, we don't know how to help them, Watson said. Visit UConn today for a Q&A with Watson by our very own Ken Best. And we will have him in the podcast studio at some point when he returns from his travels because he's not on campus right now. Interesting work. It's metanoia time, or just about metanoia time. Uh, Susan Herbst announced this semester's metanoia. Probably, if you went to UConn or have a UConn connection, you know that metanoia is a semi-annual or annual. It's kind of a campus-wide, university-wide reflection on a major issue of the day. Started under President Homer Babbage 
back in the 1960s, and it's become uh, kind of a Yukon tradition here. Not kind of. It's become a Yukon <laughs> tradition. I think we can safely say something that happens every year. This year's Metanoia is the theme is Youth for Change, and the keynote speaker is going to be David Hogg, who is one of the survivors of the Parkland uh, High School shooting last year. Very impressive. He is. He's, be, he's emerged person. as a, kind of a, a, a spokesperson on the issue of gun control, gun safety, gun violence, prominent media personality, and very impressive young man. He'll be speaking at Jorgensen Auditorium on March 4th at 7 p.m. It is uh, only open to students, faculty, and staff, but I'm sure that folks from the media will be there, so you'll be able to find out what he said. And uh, there are going to be some more speakers and events announced across the university at the regionals as well as here at stores. So keep your eyes peeled for more Metanoia news. Metanoia, I... I wish that name was different. It's a very 60s name. It stresses me out. No. <laughs> All right, from the from the world of news, let's um let's turn to uh actually let's turn to the world of news. How about that? How about that for a segue? <laughs> I'm tired. Uh, <laughs> I'm tired too and I'm hot. Ken, what uh, what do you have for us this week? There is a new exhibition at the Thomas J. Dodd Research Center that will be up until the Ides of March. Oh. As we say, it's March 15th. Uh, In the Crosshairs, Dispatches from Central America, 1983 to 1990, brings together the photography and field reports of UConn journalism professor Scott Wallace, who was a reporter in the war zones of El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Guatemala in the 1980s, which is when the United States uh, waged a Vietnam-style counterinsurgency against the leftist rebels, training and equipping the Contra as they sought to overthrow the revolutionary Sandinista government. Professor Wallace is considered one of the early multimedia reporters from from that time period, pretty much reflective of what goes on today with all reporters. Professor Wallace stopped by our studios and we talked about his experience as a war reporter. A song of mourning and anguish in Santa Cruz Loma, a hamlet 25 miles from San Salvador, where survivors of a rebel massacre Monday night yesterday buried 20 relatives. Scott Wallace says it was a cruel party of death. According to witnesses, several hundred rebels moved into the hills surrounding the hamlet late Monday afternoon. You're a war correspondent, which is a legendary title. You were working for CBS, which is a legendary news organization, going back to Edward R. Murrow and the Murrow Boys and Morley Safer and Robert L. Shirer. When you were starting out doing this work in Central America, did any of that come to mind while you were doing this illustrious, very dangerous job? Yes. In fact, I loved working for CBS. You know, I said with great pride every time I signed off on a radio piece, Scott Wallace for CBS News, San Salvador. I liked the resonance of it. I would eventually meet some of the very storied CBS News correspondents, uh, including Dan Rather, Morley Safer, Mike Wallace. Many of them came through Central America at one time or another, and I was able to work with a number of them and take them to the field. The wars back then were dominating the news and the nightly news. It was kind of like the Vietnam War all over again. You were a young man when the war in Vietnam was going on. Did you ever think watching that on television, that that would be something you would actually be doing? During the Vietnam War itself, I really did not think so. But once I started getting interested in the events going on in Latin America and starting to think about becoming a journalist, because actually I became a journalist with the express idea of going to Latin America to cover the conflicts there 
that started unfolding in the late 1970s, early 80s. I started paying a lot of attention to Vietnam, and I read a lot of the books, reviewed the the literature, and um, I was very aware of the lessons from Vietnam when I arrived in El Salvador in 1983. I had done a paper in college about the press war in Saigon in the early 1980s, and the different way that uh, visiting correspondents who parachuted in from the U.S. and relied basically on solely on embassy sources, their view of things compared to the resident correspondents in Saigon who were really getting out in the field and seeing the war for themselves. And that same kind of schism developed in Central America, uh, and I was very much aware of the lessons of Vietnam. If you look at your Wikipedia entry and I don't know that you've ever done that. Uh, they credit you as one of being one of the pioneers of what they're, they're defining as convergence journalism, where you are really doing multimedia reporting. Did that just come naturally to you, or was it just because the technology was evolving and you felt the need to do it? I went back to school, to journalism school, with the idea of going to cover the conflicts in Central America, in El Salvador, Nicaragua, Guatemala. I had this idea that that's what I was going to do. I wasn't going to go through the sort of conventional local paper up to regional and so forth. I realized, and I think I got some good advice on this, that in order to be able to do that and survive, I needed to know and have as many skills as possible in all the news gathering processes. So um, I was told at journalism school, learn how to do broadcast. And so I, I studied broadcast reporting uh, at the University of Missouri, as well as newspaper reporting, as well as photography. And I wanted to have as many tools in my toolbox as possible in order to survive once I got to the story, because I knew I was going to have to work as a freelancer. No news organization no, in their right minds, we're going to send somebody straight out of school to a big story like that. You had to make the decision to go and then figure out how to make it work. The exhibit that is at the Dodd Center is a multimedia exhibit as a result of uh, the fact that that's what your career has been. Do you take us from the old school way of doing things into the modern way of doing things, or is this mostly a, a, a severe look back? A severe look back. <laughs> it is a a statement about the time, in a way, when I did this reporting, the 1980s. But it's very contemporary also. I mean, all the photographs have been freshly digitized, printed uh, by with the latest technology. The prints are um, stunningly beautiful. I've never seen a lot of these ever printed before, much less in large format. They were taken with film. I have included a multimedia dimension that's going to incorporate video, uh, some of which I shot, but video from CBS from the time, together with my photographs, woven in with my radio reports. I'm fortunate to have salvaged a number of the original reports I did for CBS News Radio, and they will be part of the exhibit as well. So in in a way, it's sort of like, I think, a bridge between the old and the new. Uh, There will be a very definite sense that this is uh, about a period that's um, part of our past, but is definitely relevant and contemporary. I think one of the important things about this exhibition in the crosshairs is the contemporary relevance of the messages and of what is conveyed in the photographs and in the other artifacts in the exhibition. That period in the 1980s when we journalists were covering 
the conflicts in El Salvador, Nicaragua, Guatemala. That was also during a time when we had an administration that was um, speaking less than the truth about what was going on. It was a very interesting time. You had to, you know, remain faithful. And, and to this day, journalists have to remain faithful to what they see, hear, and understand with their own eyes and ears and minds. You know, sometimes that can put you on collision course with people in positions of authority who do not want those kinds of things reported. That is, I think, a abiding truth that journalism speaks truth to power. And to really understand the immigration uh, situation on our southern border today, it really helps to remember that we were deeply involved in conflict, armed conflict in Central America in the 1980s. And those societies are still living with the repercussions from those conflicts. And a lot of that is what uh, what's driving people to leave those countries now because their social fabric has largely unraveled in many ways and largely because of those wars. Scott Wallace for CBS News, Santa Cruz Loma, El Salvador. Professor Wallace covered wars for CBS News, Newsweek, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and other papers. And as we said, he continues to write for the National Geographic magazine. As you hear this podcast today, February 20th, he will participate in a panel discussion at 4 p.m. at the Dodd Center with New Yorker writer John Lee Anderson and Robert Nicholsberg, who is a Time magazine photographer for 25 years. For more information about uh, Professor Wallace, go to scottwallace.com. You can see all of his magazine writing and listen to his broadcasts. Awesome. People should really check this out uh, to get a little current eventsy. Um, if you're if you want to know sort of the roots of why people from countries like El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala are coming to the United States now, why they're leaving unstable societies, it all goes back to these civil wars in the 1970s and 1980s. So yes. timely stuff. And incredibly brave to go out there and cover these types of things. I had a hard time covering, you know, local towns. So I can't even imagine going and doing that kind of work. It's it's incredibly important. Julie? Yeah. You have something fun for us. Completely different Changing gears note. from Civil Changing War. Changing very much gears. That was a terribly constructed sentence, and I just won a writing <laughs> award today. Um, <laughs> uh, we're going we're gonna to go light and fluffy, like Ooh. a pancake or a crepe. You might say. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> There's a new Segway sheriff in town. I can just retire now. Yep. <laughs> I'm not needed here anymore. So I talked to UConn senior Taj Anthony Jean, who thought he was a shoe-in for the UConn School of Business because he's had a few businesses since high school. He's created business plans, and now he's the owner of Farmhouse Crepes in downtown stores. But guess what? He didn't get into the school business. He told me in our conversation that getting denied just pushed him even harder to succeed. I sat down with him. He is a former UConn football player turned entrepreneur to talk about how a trip to Paris that he did not go on inspired his restaurant, the challenges of balancing school with running his business, and what lies ahead. So how did you come up with the idea to open your Crepe, you say crepes. I want crepes. to say crepes, but it's crepes. Farmhouse crepes. crepes. A lot of people say crepes. Is it crepes though? It's crepes. All right, <laughs> I want to be correct. I mean, I don't. I don't have any French background. How did you come up with the idea to open this? So place? my mom. I have to take you back to when I was around fifteen. So my mom took my sister to Paris. Why didn't you get to go to Paris? I didn't get into Princeton University. This is so, a reward. Yeah. Okay. So she got into Princeton University. And she took her to Paris, and they came back from Paris, and all they talked about was crepes. 
like any good son would do, I made crepes every Mother's Day. Aww. And that's where the crepe came from. And farmhouse came from, I was walking my dog on Horse Barn Hill, and I saw a burgundy red farmhouse color. And I was like, hey, farmhouse crepes. <laughs> that's it. That's the, that's the name. I'm going that's with great. it. That's <laughs> great. That's great. How did you even decide to open this business? That's a pretty big deal for a student, and you were a student athlete at the time. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? I was an entrepreneur from when I was little. Okay. I created my first computer when I was 13 years old. I had an iPhone fixing business in high school, took it with me to college, and then I just saw the opportunity and I acted on it. I always wanted there to be in Store Center, now downtown stores, a pancake 24-hour Waffle House type of thing. And then I thought, why buy into a franchise when I could create my own? What was it like to kind of take that big jump as a student athlete? You're on the football team. I'm sure you were very, very busy. How did you balance that? I got the paperwork done for Farmhouse Crepes while I was in spring football okay. in around April time, April 2017. And I did not sleep. I made a decision to leave August 7th. I decided to leave because I had a huge meeting the next day and we're in training camp. And when we got back from training camp, I was on my laptop trying to get funding different places. Then I had a meeting with the bank the next day and I had to make a decision. Wow. Was that a very hard decision for you? It was very emotional. When you grow up being known as a student and an athlete, football was my identity at the time. And it was really hard. <laughs> but I'm, sure. I'm a businessman now. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And what lessons have you learned? As a, as a new business owner, entrepreneur? I have this DMA theory. So not DNA, DMA. <laughs> so it's called dream, motivation, and action. Okay. You have to have a dream when whatever you do, no matter what age you are, you have to have a dream. You have to strive for something in life. Motivation. What is your why? Why do you want to have the dream? Why do you want to get to that dream? What's going to push you to get to the dream? And then action. Take the first step. That's my, uh, that's my <laughs> three abbreviations. Just DMA. Dream, motivation, action. So what is your why? You said what is your why is kind of that motivation. What is your motivating factor? Well, I have a couple of whys. My mom is my first why. My mom and my sister, um, single parent, and she raised both of us to be amazing. My sister was at Princeton University. Now she's in med school at Tufts University. I went on to play Division One football, and now I own my own business. Her, she has to be strong to be able to build kids like that. Yeah. <laughs> my second why... As a kid growing up in New York, I always n knew and I realized that there's underprivileged people around in the world. So I made it known that whatever I do, whether it's me going to the next level in whatever sport I played, me getting a job, I knew I wanted to give back. So that's why Farmhouse, a percentage of the profits go to help feeding the hunger. Can you tell me more about that? In the future, I want, when we get, the brand gets bigger, I want us to have a survey on like a social media platform and you guys pick who we donate to. As of right now, we just go to the Willimantic Homeless Shelter and we donate some food. How about downtown stores? Talked a little bit about that. Why is that important for us to have here at UConn? What kind of thoughts do you have that about is, having your business there? Downtown stores is very important. It's still in the building stages right now. We're getting better while time goes on, but there's a lot of things down there that people could take advantage of. If you want a nice place to get something to eat, downtown stores is where it's at. So you did you kind of you knew you had to if you wanted to have your business, you had to be in that mm -hmm. in that area. Yeah. I was near it, so Proximity 
did come into a factor. I'm okay. going to school here. I wasn't going to drop out of school. I knew I still wanted to be in school and run the business at the same time. And what I did was just substitute the athletics for owning a business. The restaurant industry is very difficult. How have you learned how to operate in that environment? In the beginning, the first two months, I had a chef consultant that taught me how to run a restaurant. And now I am a restaurant professional. I know the ins and outs of a restaurant. And that was the hardest part because the business side of things, I knew how to do a business plan from my previous businesses, but I had no clue how to run a restaurant. I found a consultant. He taught me along the way. All right, take me through what does an average day look like for you? An average day, I'm usually up at around 4.30. I go to the gym in the morning. Then I go to my restaurant, open up my restaurant. We open at 8, but I usually get there earlier than that. I set up my laptop in the corner. If you ever see like a guy in the laptop in the corner, that's me. Iron Man <laughs> sticker, that's me. Then I go to classes throughout the day, walk my dog. Sometimes I go to the gym again at wow. night. Where do you get the energy? Coffee. Espresso <laughs> coffee from Farmhouse is really good. It gives me that energy. <laughs> what time do you stay up till? Ooh, that's a good question. It depends. Sometimes I'm, I try to get to bed by 10 o'clock. That's pretty good. Okay. But, <laughs> but it's not how it goes usually. I'm usually on my laptop doing doing work. I'm taking an online class right now at Cornell University. Oh, wow. Also, an, like additional to the classes that I'm taking just to learn business law. And then I'm sleep by midnight the latest. And then I'm up again. Do it all again at yeah. 4.30. Wow. And what's next for Farmhouse Crepes? So when I opened, I had a goal of opening three restaurants in the next 18 months. I'm on track. Right now, uh, I want to go to New York in Brooklyn. I'm from New York. I want to expand before I graduate, so coming up very it's soon. very quick. That's the next step. I want to franchise. I want to dominate the Northeast first, introduce what a crepe is to everybody. A lot of people just think sweets, but what we do is different. We have gluten-free options, and we do breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. So once we create the brand big enough, then we could go nationwide and then potentially worldwide. Good luck. Thank you. Well, I can vouch. I had lunch today from Farmhouse Crepes. He did. It was great. What'd you think? Are you a savory crepe person or a sweet crepe person? Today I was a savory. Last time I was there, I was a sweet. I'd like to change it up. You're a little bit of everything. Ken. I respect that. Just like this podcast, a little bit yeah. of everything for everyone. Or you're sweet, you're savory, everything in between. Umami. We offer a good amount of umami, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we have a new tagline. Uh, it's the most umami podcast in the universe, <laughs> covering the University of Connecticut. Um, so let's uh, let's savor some of that umami, I don't know, sensation, and go back to <laughs> a, t- a time of great uh, turmoil. The 19, early 1970s, and first I want to do a little newsy segue. I don't know if you've read the news lately, but college yearbooks have been making uh, news. Yeah, they have. Around the country. In a bad way. In a bad way. Uh, but I am uh, fascinated by an incident in which a UConn college yearbook made news at the time hmm. in kind of a bad way, but it turned out okay. It's October 1970, and... Uh, William F. Buckley Jr., some of our younger listeners may not know who that is. but Is that what the, di- the, the dining hall, the residence hall and dining hall is named after? No. I no. actually don't know who. No, I think no, no, pr- no, no, probably no. a governor. Uh, Buckley Jr. was a, a, a 
prominent conservative columnist and pundit. Oh, founded, no idea. Founded National Review magazine. Uh, so so uh, William F. Buckley Jr. was he, he kind of portrayed this image of himself as a New England blue blood. Uh, but even though his parents were, were Southerners, actually mm. from New Orleans and, and Texas, respectively. But anyway, he was a very prominent uh, columnist. He had a show called Firing Line. If you go on YouTube, there's some really good episodes where a, a visibly drunk Jack Kerouac is one of his guests. <laughs> Excellent. Anyway, his Yukon connection, he went to Yale and he lived in Connecticut. But his Yukon connection was in 1970, someone sent him a copy of the 1969-1970 Yukon yearbook, The Nutmeg. It's online. I'll put a link up to it. Uh, and it's it's an amazing document of the era. It's, it was produced by people who are who were at the time um, very in tune with the kind of youth culture mm. and the political currents. A little bit irreverent, not quite so. Uh, a lot of politics. Col- oh. A lot of politics, and uh, and so someone obviously sent this to William F. Buckley Jr. in hopes of getting him angry and writing about it, <laughs> and it worked. He had a nationally syndicated column, and for the week of uh, October 16th, 1970, he wrote a column with the headline was Kids Speak, uh, in which he trashed the yearbook, describing its contents in, in very unflattering terms, criticizing President Homer Babbage for letting it exist. Uh, he wrote, if I were a, gra- I'll try to do his voice, if I were a graduating student <laughs> at the University of Connecticut, I would bury it deep in an unknown grave, hoping forever to destroy my link with this volume of mindlessness and emotional li- literacy. Did he really talk like that? He did. Excellent. Close. Very, very, very close. He also used close. to stick his tongue out a lot, and in a lot of parodies, it, people would do that. Ew. Like Miley Cyrus. So he, I mean, he was he was a good writer and everything, but he he hated it. He thought it was very left wing and it was indicative of failures of youth in general. And he referred to us as the University of Havana at Stores, Connecticut. So, uh, all right, so we're, we're being held up as a, a sign of the moral decay of the time by this very famous columnist. And who steps into the breach to help us out? WTNH in New Haven. Ah. Uh, this is something that TV stations used to do a lot. They don't do this so much anymore, but they would do an editorial comment. Okay. Somebody, sometimes a station manager, but usually somebody from behind the scenes would come out and would give an editorial comment that was written by an editorial board at the local TV station. So that week in October, they responded to William F. Buckley Jr., and they were very polite. They said he deserved his reputation as a writer and thinker. But they said, well, Mr. Buckley, it's a lot to draw from a yearbook. Your own days at Yale aren't so far back that the exhilaration of student publishers cannot be recalled. We expect yearbook editors will keep on year after year with put-ons and write-ons as long as columnists become so shocked. But uh, they also suggested uh, that he come visit UConn, although they said if he asked the way to the University of Havana, no one would know where that is in Connecticut. <laughs> Uh, they said, there's a lot you could be told about inner city teacher training, about healthcare involvement in urban centers, and so much more. And the close experience our own people have had with the student population leaves us deeply impressed with the quality of many of today's students. It's very fascinating, these yearbook. I mean, it is. It's like a, it's a, it is a time capsule of what's going on in your life at that time. And you have a lot of freedom as a student to reflect that. So why not, you know, take, I mean, daily campus, same kind of thing. It's yeah. You know, a student that invented a fake student body president is who would do that in the real world? Who would do that <laughs> in, in college? The real world. You could do stuff like that. You absolutely could. <laughs> That's a callback to Bill X. Carlson, by the way. It Go was. back and listen Sorry. to episodes listen two to and three. Listen to those episodes if you don't know. If um, you don't get it, if you're not on the inside of this joke. I was one of the editors of my college yearbook. We yeah, didn't, we didn't go crazy, Did you crazy, like crazy that. stuff. No. It was a couple of years after that. It was. I think by the time I, I was, mine was like boring. 
Yeah, the, the 1969, 1971 is pretty... Uh, That's awesome. It's out there. We we're still in the middle of the, the 1960s chaos yeah. at yeah. that time. So I like that it's He had short hair, they had long hair. How else would we know? You know? Yeah, exactly. Like it, it should be more than just, you know, something. I mean... Pictures of kids. Yeah. Pictures of kids doing what they do. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of pictures of protests in it. and uh, That's what was going on. Exactly. Campus speakers who... Uh, Buckley Jr. did not agree with. Didn't like those campus speakers because they were too far left for him. Well, it happens. Yeah. It was the tenor of the times. Hey, the same thing's happening now. We talked about David Hogg. A lot of these right-wing I'm sure TV some, personalities I'm sure, call exactly. him out. I'm sure some people will not be happy about it. But the reason you come to a university is to be exposed to a Free diverse... exchange of ideas. Exactly. Diverse range of perspectives. Um, all right. Anyway, so that... Uh, thanks, WTNH, by the way. <laughs> yeah. For defending thanks us. for defending us. That's pretty cool. Uh, Forty nine years ago, um, <laughs> let's uh, let's wrap things up on that high note. If you're interested in uh, more of our content uh, <laughs> after today, after I hope today, because we're off our game, you can find us on twitter.com at UConn Podcast. You can also uh, go to at main underscore old, which is where I post pictures and reminiscences of UConn and the often long ago. I'll post some '60s pictures up so people can see the sort of ferment on campus. And you can find me at, at TJ Breen, where I just kind of talk about my home and auto insurance and other <laughs> exciting topics. Exhilarating. Very exhilarating. Julie, what, what about you? I am at Julie Bartuka on Twitter. I have some things to plug and shout out. I was contacted by a student who I've talked to in the past, and she wanted me to get the word out on the African Students Association Umoja Fashion Show, which celebrates African fashion and culture and is being held at Jorgensen on Thursday, February 22nd, so a couple days after you hear this. For info and tickets, visit bit.ly slash A-S-A-U-M-O-J-A, and all those letters have to be in caps for that link to work. It looks really, really cool. And I wanted to give a shout out to some people here in the building who got some Case District 1 awards. Um, We received a bronze medal for our admissions view book that was sent to some high school seniors this year. Our friend and university photographer Peter Moranis tied for gold in the excellence in photography category and... I got an award, too. Yes. <laughs> oh, and our buddies at the Yukon Foundation for their 1881 series, which is where they go to breweries. And what was your award? Brews. My award was Excellence in Writing, Silver Award. So, But they got an award for going to drink beer. Yeah. Well, explain, that's not fair. Explain what Case District 1 is to people who may not know. Case is the Council for the Advancement of... And support of education. And support of education. I always screw that up. And it's our big major professional organization, and District 1 is our regional district. And and to put that in, in context, Region 1, District 1 rather, is sort of the most higher ed heavy. Yeah, I mean, we got Boston, we got... Yeah, which is a, there's a lot of competition, so winning a case award in District 1 is it's a big deal. Thanks, Tom. Congratulations, Julie, and Humble to all brag. the winners. Yes, congrats to all the winners. We got lots of good representation here. Ken? You're finally on Twitter, right? You got a Twitter account? <laughs> no. You're, uh, yeah. you're extremely online. I'm extremely online on the airwaves at 91.7 <laughs> WHUS. Yukon Sound Alternative with the Yukon 360 podcast on Fridays at 11 a.m. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. And when we come back in a fortnight, we'll probably have some reflections on what we've learned in our year of podcasting. We're going to have cake. We Definitely should have cake. Gonna have We're cake. gonna have cake. Donuts, cookies, something. Probably just cake. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Okay.